You are listening to the Small World Podcast with me, Detanga Small. On this show, I want to provide a soapbox for travelers to tell their stories. This all started in January of 2014 when I first traveled abroad by myself. Throughout the next two years, I visited and lived in over 20 countries. But surprisingly, my most vivid memories weren't the beautiful sights of the Machu Picchu or the history of countries in Eastern Europe. It was about the people that I met on the road and the stories that they told me. That's why I started this podcast, to provide a platform so that those stories can be told to a bigger audience. And for you, the listener, to hear perspectives about the world that you may not have considered before. So without further ado, let's get the show started. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on the other side. Good afternoon from Toronto. It is 4.35 p.m., and this is the first time I've had an interview with somebody um, at a normal time. So for once, I'm not tired before the interview. And this interview is going to be great because I'm speaking with somebody that I had met two years ago in Peru. Uh, his name is Jack Harmon, and we met um, when we were in a hostel in Peru. And he was telling me about a time, uh, or he was telling me about his reasoning for being there, whereas he was motorcycling through South America to raise money. Now, I don't want to talk too much about why he was raising the money. I'll let him speak on behalf of that. But... Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jack Harmon, and uh, yeah, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you very much. I'm glad that you reached out to me and asked me to do this. Um, this this is my first interview ever, and I, I hope I don't do too poorly, but I, I'm excited to talk about it. No, you're good, man. You're good, and I had no idea this is your first interview, which which is kind of refreshing in a sense, because I have to admit, you know, it, it's nice to not have like talking points so much and just have it be a conversation. And, um, I, I, I could just imagine from your side, you have a lot to, to tell about that time, uh, when you were motorcycling through South America. Oh, there's lots of crazy stories. For oh, sure. I can, I can, I don't even know where to begin with that. Like, I don't even know if I'd have the courage to do something like that, but, um, let's start with just you telling us about yourself. Like just what's, who are you? What's, what's your whole, your whole shindig? So, my name is Jack, of course. I grew up in and around Washington, D.C. my entire life. Um, I'm actually Canadian as well, just like you. Oh. But I, did, I was born and raised uh, outside D.C. My mom's side of the family, uh, she emigrated from Canada to the U.S. around, like, mid-20s. Um, mm-hmm. Met my dad in Italy. He, he was in the Navy, the U.S. Navy, and, you know, they hit it off immediately. Got married before you know it. And then, yep, moved to D.C. and been here ever since. Um, big traveler. I've always grown up traveling with my family. Uh, we used to go to France a lot every year. We'd always go back to Canada, uh, to see our own family. Um, I think that's my mom's greatest passion in life and what she spends all her money on. Going back to Canada? Going, well, going back to Canada for sure. Yeah. Uh, for sure. That, that's without a doubt. But just traveling in general. Um, going to Europe especially was always big for us, mm-hmm. um, which really got me into traveling growing up. Well, quick question there. So which part of Canada are you from? Or is your so, is your mom from? My mom's from Oakville, just outside Toronto. Oh, literally. Wow. That's, yep, yep. Yeah, um, okay. Well, you probably know I'm from Toronto, so 
Cool. Yeah, 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 a little bit. My um, my cousin, she goes to the University of Toronto, and my grandpa, my my mom's dad, he studied uh, electrical engineering at the University of Toronto. So definitely in that way, pretty local to you. Wow. Huh. Yep. Wow. That's crazy. And so do you, I guess you come back up to like Toronto every once in a while and just visit family there or are they through other parts of, of Canada? Yeah. My family uh, up in Canada is pretty spread out from Calgary, PEI, um, I think some in Vancouver, but mostly we're pretty concentrated uh, outside of Windsor, you know, Southern Ontario mm-hmm. and Leamington and Kingsville. Okay, I don't know those last two, which makes me a bad Canadian, but that that's why I started with Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was, yeah. like, I was like, I know Windsor a bit. Like it's 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 the Detroit of Canada, so it yeah, totally exactly. makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. They're right off Lake Erie. Uh they're pretty well known for um what is it, greenhouses. They yeah. grow most of the East Coast. Most of North America is tomatoes actually in greenhouses. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Even down here in D C if I buy some uh fresh tomatoes, they'll say produced in Kingsville, Ontario. Man, pretty see, that's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't know. I know, I know the U S and Canada do a lot of trade, but I never really know like the extent of it or, or what we produce. And I should probably start doing some more research on that. <laughs> <laughs> like, Honestly, a lot of, a lot of cars that are American made are actually 90% made in Canada. I mean, more or less, so it depends on the model. Yeah. And then you come back across the border to the U S for, you know, the last 10% and they get the made in America stamp because that's the way the law works. It's just where the final piece was put on. That's where it's made. That's wow. That's kind of sad <laughs> to be honest. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> the Canada deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Oh, um, I, I'll take credit for that. Even though I've never worked in a manufacturing line in my entire life. Interesting. Oh, not never mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I work well, in a cubicle. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That makes, that makes almost two of us. I, I work in a cubicle out of my own home. So I, uh, I, I feel, I feel the desk life. It's a rough commute. <laughs> I have to wake up and sit down. Oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, you were you were saying that um, that you you traveled a lot while you were younger. I'm, I'm guessing that's because uh, your dad is part of the navy. No, no. So he, by the time I was born, my dad was just getting out of the navy. Mm-hmm. I think it was just my mom, especially, and my dad being in the navy. Um, my mom's this kind of spirit who just always needs to be in a new place. So she had her own business growing up, which gave her the flexibility to travel when she wanted to travel. Mm-hmm. And so we regularly, I think annually went to the South of France and would take a bunch of my family and, um, would actually rent a chateau for a month or something like that, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun. And then from there, you know, she would always go to England or really, really anywhere in kind of Western Europe. Um, and then I got to a point where her company, she sold her company and started working for another one that was out of Ireland. And she was, she worked in the American division, but being an Irish company, she would always have to go back for meetings. Okay. So she would take the family with, with her, and then we would, you know, do two weeks in in Europe while well, she's kind of doing that. You know, she'd go to the actual meeting for two days and extend the trip for, for much longer. So I, I was raised doing that. And then it went on to when I was 16. I guess I can jump into this. Mm-hmm. But we're pretty close with our extended family, especially on my mom's side, so up in Canada for sure. But we all emigrated before Canada from Slovakia. Okay. And yeah, yeah. And so we've got a big family in that way. Uh, around World War II, or after, after and during World War II, um, my Slovak family kind of spread out across the world to escape, um, I guess, the war in general. Mm-hmm. And they went to Australia, Canada, Argentina, um, and then, you know, of course, 
farther around Eastern Europe. So anyways, my mom decided to do some soul searching and went on Ancestry.com when I was 12, 13, 14 yeah. and found our ancestors. And we already knew a couple of them from my mom's parents, um, but they weren't in contact too much. And so she reached out to them. And then by the time I was 16, she had talked to them enough that she felt comfortable to send me by myself to go live in Slovakia with these people <laughs> for um, for a summer. So that was, so was, that, yeah. was that your, like your first time? T- well, I mean, that wasn't your first time touching down in Europe, but I'm guessing your first time in Slovakia. That was my first time in Slovakia and my first time leaving the country alone. Oh, that. Okay. Huh? Yeah. And not just for like a quick, you know, week trip or to go visit family, like not my normal family. This was a month in um, a foreign country with people I'd never met living at their house. Um, I had met the, my cousin. Uh, his name's Kubo. That's mm-hmm. his nickname. His name's Jacob. And he had come to visit us in both Virginia, outside D.C., and in Ontario mm-hmm. uh, a couple times, a couple times. And so we got along with him pretty well. And then he was showing me around Slovakia. I was living at his parents' house who I hadn't met. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was definitely, I think the beginning of my travels going forwards, just having the freedom to go wherever I wanted at 16. And my, my cousin was 18 at the time. So it's not like I had this adult figure showing me around and, you know, he was responsible for me, but as responsible as an 18 year old boy is in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's super responsible of course. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> going, going out for breakfast, maybe buying a bottle of vodka and seeing where the day takes us and traveling one day to Poland for sausages, another day to Vienna, Austria, just cause mm-hmm. yeah, we would go to Prague and visit some friends of his that were in college. And I just stay there for a week. And I mean, it, it was awesome. It was, it was really cool for me. That's, it's kind of funny. I think like, I think most people's first time alone abroad is in Europe. Like that was my first time abroad alone was in Sweden, but I feel like Europe is just like the most like accessible Right. Um, maybe, maybe not like Eastern Europe. Maybe that's like a bit more of a, of a culture shock, but I mean, then again, you had somebody there with you. So I can imagine that made it just a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Europe and Western Europe for sure is in people's comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and it's a good, you know, stepping stone into the rest of the world. So Slovakia was the first time you're abroad, but then, uh, you spoke about, I mean, before even this interview started, you spoke about being in Chile and you said you were, you were living there. Is that right? Yeah. So when I met you, I had been living in Chile for five months. Okay. I was, this is fast forward from the Slovakia trip a couple of years. It was my sophomore year at university mm-hmm. and I was 19. I decided to go study abroad in South America. Um, somewhere I've always wanted to go. I, I think after traveling a lot of Europe growing up, I, was a little bit tired. I mean, I love Europe, don't get me wrong, but I, I wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good stepping stone into what traveling is and experiencing different cultures and all of that. But I was, I think I was prepared for a big step into something that was different to me. Um, and I was a very adventurous child growing up. So I, I just kind of assumed, and I guess from things like watching Indiana Jones and various movies, South America and Latin America are always portrayed as, you know, you get the Amazon, you get Patagonia, there's just so much nature and it's very out there. Um, and that, that attracted me to go down there. So, so yeah, I ended up in Chile to go study business and economics yeah. for four or five months, which was great. Definitely learned a lot. 
Well, it's kind of, I mean, you were saying before too, like in Chile, everything's almost, basically almost everything is privatized there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know that going into it. So I was studying economics and that was my major. Mm. Um, I, I hadn't realized that Chile was the dream country for, for anybody who studies economics, really, you know, you study economics, you're kind of uh, a capitalist idealist where everything's privatized, should be privatized and the world will rule itself. And obviously nobody's exactly like that or believes that, mm-hmm. but they have more faith in, in the way that money and capital and all that plays a role in people's lives and controls things. And so when I went down there, I was surprised and, and, you know, glad to see that the way the country's run is, is very much, very much like that. It's every, everything from pension systems to water, to sewage, to all the highways. You would think a lot of highways would be public, but they're all privatized mm-hmm. and the country is, it's fantastic. I mean, it's the most developed country. It's constantly ranked as the most developed country in Latin America, including, so that's including Central and South America. Yeah. It's got the best, it still has a lot of inequality, but it has the, high, the best level of equality in Latin America. It's the only country to be ranked among the uh, OECD, mm-hmm. which is a organization that's pretty much um, comp- comprised of Western or advanced nations, really. Uh, around the world, such as, you know, England, France, uh, North America, or sorry, uh, America, Canada, countries like those, developed countries. And it is last on the list, but it's the only one in Latin America to be on it. Yeah. And I've, I found the, always found that interesting because like, you know, the big debate in the U.S. has always been um, between basically a capitalist society or more of like, a, I guess, like a socialist society or something between. Right. And you, it's, it's, you don't really see many societies where like, like privatization is the way that it's run. You know, it's always like a mixture between the two. And so that's why I'm pretty fascinated with Chile in itself. Um, because at least from what you're telling me, it, it seems like that sort of system, that, that privatization system is working over there. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it is a unique story for Latin America when I, I think, a lot of people, when you think of the relationship between America and Latin America, they kind of think um, Che Guevara, which was a, a political revolutionary and um, kind of, he's very socialist and communist. And he actually ended up going to cubicle and being a politician there and was a big advocate of, you know, Cuban re- revolution. But people think between America and South America is, you know, the CIA is kind of toppling these communist governments and imposing all these uh, dictators, essentially, who support American values. Mm-hmm. And that kind of was, in a way, I, I don't know the specific history, but what happened with Chile uh, and Pinochet, who is the dictator down there, who opened up Chile to be what it is today. Um, you know, and thankfully, you know, democracy replaced his rule. And I guess they just ended up keeping the economic system that they had. And it's worked out for them fantastically. So what made you go to Chile over like any other South American country or any actually any other country in the world? Um, OK, so a couple things. The. One, one, one big thing was I thought Santiago would be a good hub to travel around South America. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big city. Uh, it was pretty far south, but it just had, had the transportation networks, um, the flights coming in and out, all that. And then I actually studied in Viña del Mar next to Valparaiso, which is on the coast of Chile, an hour outside Santiago. Santiago. And I, it was the only program, really, that my school offered that had a beach. <laughs> and I just... <laughs> 
I really wanted to go surfing when I woke up and, you know, be able to go have a bonfire at the beach after school whenever I wanted. And that's exactly what I got. But like in a, in a place like Southern Chile, though, um, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought there was like definitely seasons. So did you go study at a time where like the season was warm or maybe I'm just wrong about the whole thing? Yeah, I didn't think about it too much. I thought, I mean, okay, so I, I came out of, you know, my time in South America with a much better understanding and perspective of how of how the country actually, or how the continent is and how the countries are run. And, yeah, you know, they're very normal and actually much more developed than I ever assumed. Um, but my point being is when I, I kind of originally thought, oh, it's South America, it's going to be warm. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what time of the year it is. There's beaches. There's, you know, it, it's going to be warm. And I left in August here, and I didn't even really consider that it was on the other side of the, you know, another hemisphere, and it's going to be winter down there. Mm. So you're totally right. When I, when I went, it was cold. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it wasn't quite snowing, but it was cold. I always had that same thought too, you know. Like, I, like I was always thinking of Buenos Aires, for example. I was just like, man, like it has to be warm throughout the year because it's South America. Like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> like at least all the music I listen to and, and all the, the videos I see of, of Latin America just make me assume that there's no such thing as snow down there. Yeah, which I mean, now that you know, now today looking back on it, it's a ridiculous thought thinking South America almost touches. Antarctica. I mean, it it gets cold for sure. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because I think one of the only ways to get to Antarctica is to go to Argentina and take a boat. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked into that while I was over there because I think it'd be an amazing experience to go to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. It's still, even already being in Chile, it's about $5,000 minimum to get to, you know, just the tip of Antarctica by boat or even by plane. Like the cheapest options, at least $5,000. You could go by plane? Seriously? Yeah, I think that's, you know, jump up another 10,000. But there's some landing strips that I guess medical bases. I'm not sure about the specifics, so I won't talk too much of that. Yeah, because I've always been curious about going to Antarctica, too. Like, it's definitely the last on my list, the last continent I want to go to. But it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, like maybe when I'm when I'm older, you know, like 55 yeah, or something. Bucket list. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's quite distant. But yeah, no. Uh, so you were in Chile and you were studying there and then... Of course, we get to the point where you, where we met in Peru, and the the basics of the story that you told me was that you were riding your motorcycle through South America back up to uh, to the United States, and you were doing that in order to raise money for uh, for depression awareness. Am I correct in that? Exactly, exactly. I did end up ultimately end up not making it back to the United States. Mm. Um. The, the trip ended up being from Santiago uh, all the way up the coast of Chile through uh, Peru, Arica into Peru. I went to Arequipa, the Colca Canyon, mm-hmm. um, and some crazy back roads over the Andes. Uh, I found you in Cusco. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I met you there at a hostel. And then I, the culmination of my trip was at Machu Picchu um, halfway through my trip. And then Based off of some budgetary constraints, I ended up heading back uh, a different way, though. I went back down, uh, I think it's Lake Titicaca, uh, through Peru, into Bolivia, La Paz, the Soler de Uyuni. I think it's the largest salt flats in the world, I want to say, in Bolivia. They're definitely huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, down the spine of Argentina, along the opposite side of the Andes that I had come up on, um, to Mendoza, which is parallel and pretty close to Santiago. I stayed in Mendoza for a number of days, met some great people and then back over the Andes to Santiago, sold my motorcycle and flew home. Wow. And, and yeah, I was, I was doing the entire thing for, um, 
depression awareness, uh, suicide prevention, raising money for a charity that was actually based out of my high school um, by the sister of a friend. Um, I, I didn't know him too well. I guess he was just a fellow student at, you know, before my time at my univer- or my high school. But he had committed suicide, and his sister and his family came up with this charity, which raises awareness for depression and runs a lot of great programs, um, going to different high schools, bringing counselors, uh, opening up a dialogue and discussion about depression in teenagers. And so I, I had suffered from depression myself um, from pretty young age, around 12, which I know a lot of people think, like, 12 years old? How do you even know what you're feeling at that age? Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, totally, totally fair. But from about 12 to 17, um, I, I had a pretty rough time in my life. I went through a rough patch. And so that's that's what got me into the that area of nonprofits and, you know, raising money and something I'm passionate about is depression awareness. Yeah. And so... Yeah, and that goes back to, I, I lost, uh, unfortunately, a few friends from depression as well, uh, from suicide. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I have family that's that's experienced depression, and it's uh, it's quite something, because you, it's, it's difficult to specifically understand what's going on, you know, um, because you're kind of like just seeing the outside of it. You're not feeling what they're feeling. Um, and, and so like in, in my case, I would get frustrated because I was just like, like, no, everything is fine. Why are you upset? You know? And that was like part of my own ignorance, um, where I didn't understand that, like, you know, things can be fine. Things can be great. And it could still be something of like more of a a mental issue, you know? Um, so I, I, I totally get that. And it's, it's definitely an honorable thing that you did there. Yeah, thank you. And you're right. That's um completely, I think, one of the hard, hardest things uh, with depression is everything can be completely okay. And, you know, you you might be thinking that and it might be hard for people to understand why someone's depressed. But it's also hard for that person oftentimes to understand why they're depressed because I think many people realize that, you know, everything should be okay. And it is it is a disease. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, no, it's, it's an important issue. And it means a lot to me. Definitely. Definitely. And so... When, uh, I mean, you, you did it, you, you, you did the trip, you rode around on a motorcycle and it's a motorcycle that you, you purchased in Chile, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a little background of that. I, I went to South America cause I won, you know, I've always wanted to go down there and it was a whole study by experience for me. I had no intention whatsoever. Um, at least farther than six months in advance of riding a motorcycle by myself at 19, uh, throughout South America. It wasn't until I watched a video a friend recommended to me, um, the motorcycle diaries mm. by, uh, is by Che Guevara, um, the political revolutionary I had referenced earlier. And he, he knew I was into motorcycles. I had bought one a year earlier from actually not even a year earlier. By the time I watched the movie, I had, I had bought a motorcycle just a few months before. And my friend knew I had wanted to go to South America and, they knew I had just gotten a motorcycle, so they thought, you know, what a great fit. I don't think what they didn't realize is that I would become fascinated with the movie. And, you know, the second I finished the film, I started researching ways I could do the exact same trip. So that's how I got into that. Yeah, and I couldn't even, like, 
how do you research something like that? Because like, obviously Google Maps, for example, is a lot more established up here. And when I do my bike routes, just regular bike, um, it's, it's even difficult to, to come up with a, a writing plan. So like, what was the process like figuring out how to motorcycle around South America? So there are um, some, there's a lot of online forums that you can find surprisingly uh, cross continental, you know, like uh, going from country to country, big motorcycle trips is actually a pretty big hobby of a lot of people around the world. So there, there are some good forms that you can find information from everyone's trip though, is always going to be different for sure. You know, when you're going across the country, there's so many different routes and paths you can take and places you can go visit. So a lot of that advice that you find online is more how to prepare. Um, if you're lucky and you're in a country like I was in Chile, which happens to be the most it just happened to be, you know, when I went, probably the easiest country for a foreigner to buy a vehicle in. And that kind of goes back to how everything's super privatized and lenient. Um, and so that worked out really well for me. And I found a lot of tips and advice on how to navigate the laws through the Internet. And then Google Maps. I mean, it's amazing how well mapped this planet is by Google Maps. And that... I mean, I took it at its word that it knew where it was taking me. And nine times out of 10, I've got some crazy stories where it didn't know where it was taking me. But nine times out of 10, it got me to where I wanted to go. And so it just kind of comes down to, you know, me looking from a bird's eye view on Google Maps of what, what looked neat and uh, mm -hmm. taking that route. Well, let's talk about that one out of 10 then, because uh, I know there's definitely something that must have happened there. Yeah, well... I mean, for sure, I had some crazy, crazy experiences and, and stories from all that. But, but as far as Google Maps concern, is concerned, um, yeah, it's funny I'm talking about that one because the one experience I have in mind was the day after I met you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know if you're bad luck or what, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was, I was leaving Cusco, um, going to Machu Picchu, which, again, was the big the big halfway point of my trip and something I was ex super excited about. And, you know, I, well, yeah, I, I woke up that morning and all I wanted to do is be at Machu Picchu. Uh, the morning again, after I met you, I was in Cusco at the hostel and I woke up super early and I was convinced that I was going to get myself there. A lot of people from Cusco end up taking buses or, you know, there's lots of, I'm, I'm not sure how you did it. I think you told me you hiked it. Yep. 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 Awesome. So a, a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a lot of options to get, to get there, but I was like, I got this far by motorcycle. I'm going to get myself the rest of the way to Machu Picchu, or at least as far as I can by motorcycle. So got up really early. I wanted to get there as quickly as I can. So I'd have the day to do it. Cause I was, I was doing pretty much a day trip and it's about an hour away from Cusco or should be an hour away. And or at least the train station is, um, that's all another story, but the town I was going to where I take a train into Machu Picchu uh, was an hour away. And I was on my, on my bike using my trusty Google maps, which up until that point hadn't quite failed me. Um, not as spectacularly as this had this, this trip, but I was maybe a third of the way through and I was on a nice windy asphalt road. And I saw the big tour buses with all the, you know, uh, tourists essentially on, on there going to Machu Picchu and their nice AC, um, air conditioned cabins and on their phones. And I'm um, meanwhile on this motorcycle, it's pretty cold in the morning, 
but I, I was enjoying things. And I was kind of like weaving in and out of traffic and going along with these buses down this road. And Google Maps was like, yeah, you're going the right way. And I saw signs on the road like uh, Oyan Pambo, which is the city I was going to, mm-hmm. is this way. Uh, until it wasn't that way. And <laughs> Google Maps told me to take a hard left um, off of my nice asphalt road and onto a small muddy track that ran behind a house. And at first I was like, no way, this looks like the driveway to some, you know, private residence. And it's not even like uh, suited for cars, like large cars. But mm-hmm. I trusted Google Maps up until then. I'm always down for an adventure. So I went with it. And it actually the road opened up and so a bigger, still albeit dirt road, but a bigger road. And it looked like it went for a ways um, up into the mountains and not through the valley like the asphalt road took me. So I thought that would be interesting. Google Maps said it would shave off about 30 minutes. It would shave off a bunch of bunch of mileage, and it would be kind of a direct shot as opposed to wrapping my way through the mountains. So mm-hmm. I went along with it, and I was going and going um, slower, much slower, though, than I was on the asphalt road. Um, something I found Google Maps doesn't take into consideration too much is how fast you can really go on a on a bumpy dirt road. And I was going mm-hmm. through there, and then the road kept getting smaller, and there were, you know, at some point, no more road signs. And then another point, um, there were no more cars. And I got to this village about half an hour through there, and uh, mind you, I was supposed to be at this town another 20, 30 minutes. And I got to this town where people were literally having oxes and, you know, like donkeys pulling their things. And there were no cars or vehicles whatsoever. So no idea how Google Maps knew that that was a street legal road, but I kept going along with it and I was getting a little sketched out because I didn't, I didn't see how it all connected in the end. And Google maps said, you know, no, keep going, keep going. And about 10 kilometers, you're going to take a hard right onto this byway and you're going to be, you know, right at the town. And I'm like, okay, okay. You know, I, if, if I'm that close, I trust you. But right as it said <laughs> that the road disappears and I'm driving through farmland there, there are people with their, you know, large sun hats on, picking whatever they're picking out, out of their farm and tossing it into their bags. And I'm literally just driving through the crops because there's no road. And I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I was so close. I thought at least that like, you may as well keep going and just get out of there as opposed to turning back. I had a train to catch. I, I didn't want to miss my train. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, so I was going, I was going. And then I get back onto this kind of footpath kind of thing uh, out of the farm. And I, I would like to point out I wasn't ruining any crops or vegetables. I was going. <laughs> that was my first thought. I was like, are you sure you weren't just like destroying the livestock and crop of these people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was very cautious to kind of go between the rows of crops, you know, and, and not just destroy everything in my path. So I, I wasn't comfortable being on the farm. And I, I was really happy when I got to this footpath and, you know. So I got on there, and then Google Maps is now telling me, you know, I've gone a ways down the, that path, and it says 300 meters, you're going to take a hard right onto that byway. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, this town is at the bottom of a mountain, like in the valley of a mountain, and I'm very much on top of this mountain. And the Andes are steep, so I, I am high up there. It was hard for, to me, hard for me to believe that in 300 meters, I could just take a right and be in that town. Like, I, I need to descend the mountain first. But, you know, actually, yeah. in hindsight, maybe that makes sense, but I wasn't thinking about it too much at, at the time. So 300 meters, all right, take a right. 200 meters, take a right. And I'm going uphill right now, and I can't really see what's over the hill, but I assume it's the road, not thinking. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not on an actual road anymore. I am, I am on farmland. And so I'm going, and I'm going like 40, 50 kilometers an hour, and then it says 10 meters, take a right. 
and it's a pretty steep hill, so I'm still not seeing over it. And then all of a sudden, it says, take a right five meters, and I just get to the crest of that hill, and right in front of me, you know, just meters away, is a sheer cliff of, like, in my head, it was a kilometer steep, but, like, it was, it was a, it was a big drop. And I slammed Holy on my brakes. Shit. Yeah, I slammed on my brakes, and my back tire, you know, kind of slid in the mud, and I just barely, I was, I was inches from the corner of that cliff and just, just falling, falling down. Granted, the byway was at the bottom of the cliff, <laughs> so Google Maps was oh. entirely wrong. Uh, but, so it was right, but it was wrong. Yeah, it was going right? to get me there, alive or dead, who knows, but it was going to get me there. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I had to, that, that was a ridiculous experience of me relying way too much on Google Maps and being way too uh, carefree as far as not planning my, my routes ahead of me. And so luckily I did stop in time and I, I thought, you know, how am I going to get back? I, I really don't want to go the whole way back. I came, I'm going to miss my train. And that's uh, like a hundred dollars for a new ticket. Not something on, on a budget motorcycle trip I am looking to spend. And it says, actually Google Maps had, had no, no solutions for me at that point. So in my rusty Spanish that I've been picking up for the last few months, I asked the farmer like what the quickest way to get down was. And he looked at me and he said something I didn't understand. But then he made this hand with two, uh, this motion with his two fingers, kind of like walking, uh, you know, two fingers walking along. And he's like, he pointed over the ridge and said, you can get down to the city that way. So mm -hmm. I didn't understand what he was saying too much, but I knew where he was pointing. So I, I made a go for it. And it was another footpath, maybe a meter in diameter or in width. And I took my, I started taking my motorcycle down it, but I quickly realized that this wasn't even meant for wagons or carts like this was to walk down and mm -hmm. it had that cliff i was talking about was pretty much on the side of the path and the mountain was on the other side so i was I, i'm trying to i'm trying to put this into words but i was essentially climbing down the cliff to a, a footpath cut out the side of it and i had my motorcycle and i was doing it on that and i was i was just so kind of upset at that point and like determined to get to the bottom I yeah. think about the safety behind it, um, which, you know, after I saw entire portions of the path just crumbled away down a cliff <laughs> and boulders in my, in my way. And it was like super muddy. I probably should have thought better about it. And actually, as I got halfway down it, I was like, you know what? Like, this is really sketchy, but I'm halfway down it. I may as well. <laughs> um, and so I kept going slowly, slowly, slowly. And then I get almost to the bottom. And this was like the most frustrating thing. I was, I could see the town I wanted to be at. But the path only went two-thirds of the way down the cliff, and it ended at this kind of like satellite base or whatever, or um, cell phone tower, cell phone tower that they were building. Mm -hmm. And so there's no there's no way to go down, you know, unless I was going to hang glide, I guess, my my way there. So the only thing I could do is go back up the cliff. And, and this is, you know, the last part of me almost dying that day, thankfully. But as I'm going up the cliff, I, uh, there's this real steep part, and it's super muddy. And mind you, I'm by myself, nobody for, at this point, you know, kilometer, several kilometers. And mm. I, I went up, up this very steep portion, um, in, in the mud, my tire lost traction as, as I was going up it, uh, it slipped my, it, the back tire just kind of collapsed under me. My bike fell over and I was struggling not to have it fall in the direction of the cliff, but against the side of the cliff, you know? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, but it was all happening so fast, and my trunk slammed open. I lost a lot of important documentation, a lot of tools over the side of the cliff, and 
I, I may have crushed my leg as I fell over. And because they're so steep and muddy, it actually, my bike started sliding down the hill with me caught under it. Um, and at the time, you know, I was just, just no time to really think and just kind of act. So I, I grabbed the front brake with the free hand I had. And then I tried uh, pushing down with my other hand on the rear brake just to get any traction I could and stop the tires from rolling down uh, on its mm-hmm. side. I, I managed to get to stop, thankfully. And I stopped the bike, turned at an angle where it wouldn't slide anymore. And then I just sat there <laughs> and I sat for about 20 minutes, my feet dangling off the cliff, looking up, looking down, looking all around me and just thinking, fuck. <laughs> um, so, so that was a difficult day for me. I, I ended up, I ended up over the course of the next hour, slowly sliding my bike down the hill. Um, I fixed it up with the tools I could, I could find that hadn't been completely lost uh, and I, I, you know, tightened some things together, fixed the wheel up a little bit. It got a little bent and, um, some nuts and bolts were loose. And then, yeah, I just, I just went for it. I just, instead of going at like what most people would think is in a reasonable and sane speed for going up a muddy cliffside, I just, mm-hmm. I, I knew my problem was I didn't have enough traction and I didn't have enough momentum. And so I lost traction in the back tire and I wasn't going fast enough to keep me going. And so Either I stay there on the side of this cliff and with no way out, um, not much money. I don't, I didn't have any cell service or I can just book it and hope for the best. And so I ended up, you know, just slamming on the accelerator and speeding up that thing. My back tire fishtailing, slipping, sliding all behind me. And thank God I made it to the top. Um, and then from there, yeah, I, w- I went back the way I came. I learned from my lesson not once, you know, the second time. And I went back the way I came, bought another train ticket. And that was that. To think that you did all of that to save a hundred dollars. To save a hundred dollars. <laughs> to save a hundred dollars. That is so. Uh, holy crap! First of all, I mean, tell me about it. What What was going through your mind during that twenty minutes where you're just sitting on the side of the cliff? I was I was on the edge of tears. To be totally honest with you, I yeah no, I I thought I was gonna die because I didn't know how to reach or contact anybody. It didn't look like people had been down that, that path in you know, weeks or whatever. There were no tracks in it. Um, it's fresh caked mud and it hadn't rained in several days. So nobody had been down there in a while. Um, no, yeah, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was terrified to, to hit that accelerator and go up that, that, you know, steep section of it because, going that speed, I don't have control over my bike if it falls. And I, I could have very well just gone off the other side. So, so I think after the 20 minutes, you know, I just kind of got collected myself and figured that there's only one thing you can do at this point. And, um, and let's get to your destination and survive. Right. Yeah. And so, okay. Because, um, when I hiked to Machu Picchu, like it was, it was a five day hike. And on the fifth day, when we finally got there, it was like, uh, I mean, I thought at the time it was a pretty hard hike. Mm-hmm. So reaching the Machu Picchu was like just so awe-inspiring. It was, I guess, like it just made it so much better that you know I hiked for all that time and I was so tired and like so dirty and whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, you finally see your goal. And, and and for me, I was just like so excited and happy that I finally made the goal. So, how did you feel? <laughs> if I was just hiking and you went through all of that, like how did you feel when you made it to the Machu Picchu? Yeah, very, very similar. I mean, I, I would say a lot of people, I, I looked it up before doing that and a lot of people recommended the hike for that exact reason. 
you go through such a difficult mm-hmm. multi-day experience and then just to have that be the pinnacle of that journey is so rewarding it feels so good that um it's not the same as taking a bus to the top uh which is actually what i ended up doing but but mm-hmm. having that motorcycle experience behind me and the the weeks it took me to get there um yeah i mean i i did uh, yeah yeah i parked my bike at the train station took a train to a bus took a bus to the top and i just I just plopped down next to a couple of alpaca on Machu Picchu and just looked over all the mountains and the ruins and the valleys. And I mean, I just sat there and just kind of took it all in and it was, it was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was great. It's everything I've been working for, for weeks, oh, man, uh, for, for really months as I was planning this trip, you know? Yeah. And I guess those motorcycle, like the ability to fix a motorcycle in such a, a dire position like that was very useful were you were you always into motorcycles yeah no yes and no i was always into things that make your heart beat fast and (laughs) and make you make you question a lot of decisions Um, (laughs) because that basically what you exactly basically what you just did there was like exactly that right yeah yeah that is what i live for now i try not to experience near-death experiences every day but but you know i've always been into more adrenaline oriented uh hobbies and so i i just started motorcycling that year but i I dirt biked a few times and i like mountain biking and uh things of that that nature um, maybe bungee jumping, uh, zip lining. I hadn't gone sky. I still haven't gone skydiving. That's definitely next on the list. So stuff like mm-hmm. that is very exciting. Um, I got on the motorcycle. A friend sold me his bike, and mm-hmm. I mean, he knew I'd love it, and he taught me how to ride it. I crashed it within 24 hours, and I fell in love. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like flying off of those handlebars as I was trying to impress some girls in my my college town. I mean. You know, while embarrassing, just just the rush of that, and you know, it, it made me want to to learn what what I messed up, why I crashed, um, and how I could be better at what I was doing, and yeah, yeah, I fell in love with the rush of it all. I think that's when you know you love something, like when you fail at it and you still want to continue. Yeah, like like because because there's certainly things that people do when they fail at it, they're embarrassed, they're like they're kind of you know their their motivations kind of withdrawn and they don't want to do it anymore, but. Um, like there's been a few times where even I, like I failed at something and I was like, man, like when I get this, it's going to be amazing. Exactly. You know? Yep. So I could, I could only imagine that's like exactly how you felt. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and that summer before, you know, in between buying the motorcycle and going to South America, I had worked at a, a mechanic in uh, my college town, a motorcycle mechanic. And I got to spend a lot of time working on bikes and learn about tools and, you know, how to fix pretty simple things. But but things mm-hmm. that definitely, um, I, I learned a lot, you know, when, when it came time to do this trip, I learned a lot about fixing my bike myself and how to do it and what I needed. And, um, that, that's how I got into that. And I, I did end up using that knowledge quite a few times, man. And like, I, uh, uh, wow, <laughs> normally I have something to say, but just hearing that story, it, it's, that's nuts. And uh, the thing I've been thinking about this entire time though, was, I mean, of course you've had, you've had more stories than that, but the reason that you were, you were essentially going through uh, South America was, was to, like you said before, to raise money for depression awareness. So on your trip, was there anything there that like that impacted you that either made you um, realize that what you were doing was the right thing or um, you know, anything that sort of affected and I gave you the drive, you know, midway through. 
Yeah. Uh, Cause I mean, I, f- I figured like after an, an incident like that, you know, where you're, you're kind of near death, you, you might not feel so motivated to continue. No, no, there, there were several experiences, um, similar to that where I just, uh, had either difficulties with my motorcycle, difficulties with planning, with budgeting, um, you know, being stuck at a border for two days cause I didn't have the right paperwork. Um, there, there are a lot of hard things like that that made me want to quit. Uh, but it was, you know, 15 days in, which was again, the same day I met you. So big day for yep. me, big day all around, uh, Machu Picchu. Super exciting. Kuchu. Yeah. Yeah. It must, that must've been the most exciting part of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, yeah, that, that, that exact, exactly. But, but no, I, I, uh, I got into Cusco and the last few days before getting there, um, was one of my most, uh, extreme off-roading experiences. I was going through the Andes and I, I took another back roads route that Google Maps has suggested to me for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it was through these dirt gravel roads on top of the Andes, you know, like going by volcanoes and, and just like way, way up there, freezing cold storms would come through. It was, it was just so isolated. Um, and it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And so I finally got to Cusco, which is the first city I'd seen in, in days in a week, I think. And mm-hmm. I was just so ready to to take a nice warm shower, go to a nice hostel, have internet, all of that. And but I got there that morning, um, after, you know, waking up at five AM and I got I got into Cusco around eight AM, went to a cafe, fed myself, and I, I finally had cell phone service again. So I checked my phone and I got a text and I had seen a bunch of notifications and some group chats I was in and stuff. But I got a text from uh this girl I was seeing at the time and she kind of like, like, of course I opened that first and she like warned me like something really bad had happened and that I was about to hear uh, a lot about it. And she known, she had known I was kind of away from internet for a couple of days. Um, mm-hmm. so she, she prepared me for that. And I, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. Like, what, what do you mean? And, uh, she tells me what happened and I, I read all about it immediately after from uh, the rest of my friends. And, uh, so one of my fraternity brothers actually committed suicide the night before and he was found uh, hanging in his in his room um, that, at one of the fraternity houses that we had, and that was that was, as you can imagine, you know, extremely difficult for me to process. Um, yeah, halfway through a trip where I was blogging every day and and raising money for for depression and you know, kind of promoting depression awareness, and I, I thought that I was, you know, it, it felt like I was making a difference. I felt like you know I was doing the right thing, but to, to see somebody that close to me. Um, as I'm doing that. And he had, he had reached out to me just a couple of days before saying how cool South America was and, you know, how jealous mm-hmm. he was. And like, just hey, that, that took a lot out of me. And so I, I kind of spent the day just to myself thinking, and, you know, is what I'm doing right? Is it, is it really matter, you know, um, mm. making an impact ultimately. And I mean, yeah, I, I wanted to quit and maybe not the motorcycle trip in, entirely, but at the very least, I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was keep blogging about my experiences, you know? Yeah. Um, and I just kept, like maybe not like feeling like it was appropriate or something. Yeah, exactly. That. And I just, you know, I just kind of wanted to withdraw. I kind of felt like I failed in some sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was hard, but I, I think after everything I'd been through to get to where I was and the very positive feedback I'd been getting, um, not just from people who were donating money. But from people who had suffered from depression themselves, they had, you know, messaged me uh, privately and some publicly on my Facebook page uh, talking about how 
I mean, in their eyes, they felt a lot more comfortable uh, discussing their own mental illness and depression in my community of friends and their community of friends uh, with the Orville app because it was a topic that a lot of people were talking about at the time. Um, and, and so I felt like, you know, I, I kind of looked back on that and I found some strength in that. I was at least helping some people. Yeah. So, so after a, you know, a long day of, of thought, I, I, I continued with what I was doing. Uh, the next day was the day that this whole Machu Picchu <laughs> thing happened. And, um, I don't know when I, when I did get to Machu Picchu and, you know, kind of experience that whole thing and do some more reflection. Uh, yeah, I, I decided that because of what happened just, you know, the night before, um, that was more reason than ever why I had to continue doing what I was doing. And to raise that awareness. I, yeah. I completely understand that. Yeah. Man, it's, uh, it's hard. I could imagine. Like, I mean, especially, you know, having that sort of day while going to the Machu Picchu after finding that out. Yeah. I, I had a lot, a lot to think about, you know, it's a lot of reflection. Yeah. So, um, I mean, going through the trip, you said you, that you went from, from Peru to back to Bolivia, right? You said you went through, through Bolivia. Yep. Yep. I actually, uh, ended up meeting a friend, Evelyn. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you remember her, but she was staying, yep. Yeah, she was staying at that hostel, and she was looking at going down to Lake Titicaca and and maybe the salt flats. And I had an extra helmet on my bike, and I offered it up to her and said, "Hey, if you want, come with." Um, and she was, you know, a pretty, yeah, she she was 100% open to the experience, and so she came, tagged along, and for the next few days, I had a travel buddy, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, going through mountains and deserts for days at a time alone does get that gets you. I, I did enjoy every second of it, but yeah, that, that was awesome. So we went down to Lake Titicaca in the south of Peru, mm-hmm. um, and then we we checked out these floating islands uh, in in Lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the town was called Puno, but anyways, these floating islands that have been around for hundreds, thousands of years, maybe. I'm not sure about the entire history, but pretty much the native people would put these reeds together and and create these islands that were a couple meters thick. And they would live on them and have their huts also built out of reeds and then push them off into the center uh, of this lake. And then, yeah, they would live off that. And it was awesome. I took a boat tour, uh, checked all that out, went to some, like, actual, you know, islands in the lake. And it was a huge lake. Um, yeah. And that that was a really cool experience. And I kept going down. Um, I mean, I'm trying not to overwhelm you too many stories because I got a lot of stories. But getting into Bolivia itself from the border, that was a whole experience itself. Like crossing the border between Peru and Bolivia? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, I mean, I'll go into that just, just a little bit, but it, it took me <laughs> about eight hours to, to to do that, which wasn't as bad as two days from Chile to Peru. Mm-hmm. But, I yeah, I ended up, you know, going across and not knowing I needed to get a visa. And then when I found out I had to get a visa, I have to wait in line for three hours. I found out I had to also pay cash for it, and I didn't have cash, so I had to go back to Peru, go to an ATM, ATMs were closed, then I have to go to these money exchangers, and the money exchangers gave me money, and I had to go wait in line again to get my visa, and I'd give them my, my money, and then they'd tell me, okay, wait, no, you need uh, photocopy documentation, so I had to go back to Peru, get the photocopy documentation, wait in line again, do that, had the money, was ready to pay for the visa, had everything that I thought I needed, and then they told me, no, the dollar bills, the, the, the cash, American cash that I was giving them, 
uh, had small microscopic tears in it. Oh, something gosh. like I would never even like see with my, my two eyes. Yeah. And they were very particular about it. So I had to go back to the money exchangers and like beg them to take the money back and give me like some brand new crisp notes. Mm-hmm. And that took a lot of, you know, they didn't want those bills for the exact same reason that, you know, I couldn't use them. So I finally managed to get some money after a lot of negotiation and went back again, did it again. And then finally I got my visa and this was like four hours into it. And I felt terribly because Evelyn, the girl who was with me, mm-hmm. uh, I guess on a European passport, she was from the Netherlands. Uh, they just let her in. No visa, <laughs> no nothing. Like on her first try, she got in. And so she was being very kind and patient waiting for me. And um, so I finally got that done four hours of you know working with these border control people and going back and forth. And then mm-hmm. I'd get my motorcycle in through customs. And then, you know, of course, they wanted me to pay some more cash and get more photocopy documentation. And, you know, at this point, what I'm supposed to be doing is every time I go into Bolivia, I check in with them. And then every time I go back to Peru, I'm supposed to check in with them. But they were having me go back and forth so many times that I just, <laughs> I would just sneak sneak on by and do what I had to do and <laughs> just to save as much time as I could. Um, well, I mean, you had, you had like an, you had a, a mission to accomplish, basically. And like, that was kind of just a hindrance. Oh, it was, yeah, it was ridiculous. And so finally I get in there and I didn't even think about filling up my gas tank at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, after like, I think it took five, six hours of just getting across into Bolivia. And I, I pack up my bag, everyone gets on the back and we set off to La Paz. And after like 10 miles, I realized that I'm running out of gas. So I stopped in the nearest town and they tell me, oh, there's no gas here. I'm like, wait, what do you mean there's no gas here? Like, this is a whole town. There's three gas stations. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you can get gas on Sunday. I'm like, Sunday, it's Tuesday. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean I have to wait till Sunday to get gas? And they're like, oh, well, you know, maybe check the next town. But we, we're waiting for resupply. So mm. I, can, I continue on towards La Paz, towards my final destination. I'm, I'm nearing an empty tank. And I get that town. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, no gas. You know, I'm like, what do you mean no gas? And they're like, oh, yeah, you can just wait till Thursday. And I'm like, I don't have two days to wait here. There's not a single hotel in town, you know, and I finally, like, I talked to somebody, some tourists, and they're like, oh, yeah, Bolivia is having, like, countrywide a shortage of gasoline, and they're especially not selling it to foreigners because they're saving it, you know, for citizens of the country, and so I didn't realize that, and I had already gone, you know, a pretty decent way into Bolivia, um, and, and I was running out of gas, and there's no gas anywhere, anywhere to be found, and then the guy at this one gas station tells me, hey, you know, 20, 20 miles up there is a gas station and they might have gas. We don't know. So I'm looking at my gas tank and I have just enough to go 20 miles. So this is the big risk then. This is a big risk. Yeah. Like, it, you know, or I could go back the way I came. Um, I, I, actually, I think it's more like, it was a little more than that 30, 40 miles, whatever, but I could go keep going to this gas station or I go back the way I came to the border, which was just about the same amount of distance. Um, and I knew there was gas in Peru. <laughs> so, did I want to deal with that border again? No, not whatsoever. Yeah. I just wanted to get on my way and um it was it was a really tough decision to make, but I think what made it for me was looking ahead at, you know, at the gas station that I was just about to go to, all of a sudden like thunder and lightning storms come out of nowhere and it's like pouring rain in that direction. Oh, so it must have been like you might as well just go anyway just to get some sort of shelter, right? Well, yeah, yeah, okay. You could think that. And yes, but I was, I was not about to get soaking wet on top of everything that had happened. And so it wasn't raining where I was, but the storm was coming towards me. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I, I ended up just turning it back and going back to Peru. And um, 
I, yeah, I booked it away from the storm. Never got wet. Thankfully mm-hmm. it stopped. It, uh, I, uh, raced it and beat, beat it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I ended up sneaking back across the border. Yep. No chance. I was signing in again um, and doing all that again. So I snuck back across. I got a gas tank and I was looking for a gas station over there. Of course, no gas stations that were open that day, but I did find this woman who, you know, classic Peruvian dress and all of that, um, you know, really bright clothing and a big sun hat. And she was sitting crisscross uh, at the entranceway of this random unmarked house in this town. Mm-hmm. And I looked behind her. I was just walking along looking for a gas station. And I looked behind her and I just saw these barrels and barrels and barrels of gasoline. And it was the weirdest thing. But I was, you know, I, I had already bought a gas tank from a plastic shop across the street. And I went up to her and said, hey, do you know where I can find some gas? I see you have a lot of it stockpiled behind you. Yeah. Speaking Spanish and all that. Mm-hmm. And she sells it to me. <laughs> and next thing I know, she's... um. She's siphoning the gas out of these things, you know, like sucking on a hose that's, you know, one in her mouth, one in, in the barrel and like pouring it into my gas can. And like, this is like a 70 year old woman. And like, it just, it was just so weird. Um, but I got the gas that I needed. I filled up this, and it was a, you know, it was like a five gallon can. So she was doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, filled that up, went back across the border, filled up my tank. And through the night, I, I made it to La Paz. Um, wow. So. So that, that's another, you know, a little, little story along the way, man, I, I would like love to hear these stories for hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know the podcast can only be so long. Yeah. There, there's some other outlandish things that happen along the way. Um, yeah. Went, went to La Paz. It was great. A uh, couple days in there ended up breaking my motorcycle, leaving the city as it's going to the salt flats. Uh, I'm going to breeze over that one, but that was a whole thing. Spent two days at a mechanic, uh, getting a new clutch installed, and uh, Evelyn ended up having to go back to Cusco because, you know, didn't have two days budgeted in her time. Yeah. So I, I, you know, made it work. I was actually about to take a train back to Santiago. I was so frustrated. But, like, I, you know, outside of these, these isolated events, I was having a blast the whole way. Yeah. Every time I figured something out, I mean, you just get this kind of feeling of accomplishment and joy and, you know. So I got I got the bike fixed, went on down to the Salt Flats, um... And and this is another example where you should not trust Google Maps. Or actually, you know what? Maybe I should have. I feel like this is like an anti-Google Maps podcast. I might just title it that. Yeah, yeah. Why why you should switch the ways. Yeah, like. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, this time Google Maps had it right. But but looking at it, I just thought they had it wrong. Um, so I was only going a few, a couple hundred miles south of, of where I was at. And there's a straight shot road that went straight to Uyuni, the town I wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. Yet Google Maps was telling me to take a 800-mile path around that road. Like, just so out of the way. It was ridiculous. And it was telling me that it would save me five hours. Save you five hours? Yeah, yeah. It said to go 200 miles. I mean, I'm not doing the math right in my head, probably. But, but essentially, yeah, it said it was going to take me a very, very, very long time to go through the straight shot and going through the very long way would be a ridiculous like amount of time quicker. And I just didn't believe it. I was just like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, like I'm looking at this map, even if I was going, you know, super slow, there's no way that, you know, this route you want, you want me to take is, is quicker. Mm. Um, it was quicker. Okay. <laughs> like in hindsight, no, not the way I took, not the way I took the way Google maps had wanted me to take. They were totally right. I they nailed it. Um, it was an asphalt road. 
all, all the way around. Oh. And the way that I had taken was literally through a desert. And you ever heard of Dakar rally? Yep, I have. Um, yeah, yeah, kind of like uh, so motorbikes and kind of yeah off roading stuff, buggies and all that, mm-hmm. like big races they have around the world. Anyways, that year's uh, Dakar race was going through Bolivia, and they're going through these salt flats. And like it's some serious off roading, and they're going right along the path that I was taking. If that puts anything into perspective of how not asphalt, um, <laughs> how that, not that meant to be driven over the road kind of asphalt it was. Yeah, yeah, this was meant for like you know huge like lifted buggies with like shocks going through creeks and rivers and flying over sand dunes. Not not a nineteen year old kid scared shitless on a motorcycle. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I was going as like washboard. Uh, roads for half of it and then you know entire bridges would be washed out by like rivers and i'd have to navigate my way through that and it took me it took me 10 hours and that one day to go 200 miles um it was it was exhausting and long and but i got to where i, I needed to be and i saw a bunch of cool things i mean i was, I was right out there in the nature mm. you know so that was that was cool i got only ran off the road twice uh that was good <laughs> by some semi trucks that were braving parts of it Mm-hmm. Uh, Sounds about right. Yeah, and I made it down to the salt flats. Uh, and actually, I left really early, so I had gotten there in, in the evening, and I really wanted to go check out these salt flats, and I was not that patient. I didn't want to wait for the morning, you know, the next morning. Mm-hmm. So I saw this one video of this guy who motorcycled from Alaska to, to Patagonia, and one big portion of his video is him in the salt flats on his motorcycle and how he just drove off by himself. He didn't take any buses or any... Um, guides or tour guides or whatever, because the salt flats, you know, when you think about it, they're just flat. They're it's salt flats, yeah. Like salt flats. It's there's nothing to run into. It's just like a flat, you know, expansive area that you could pretty much drive any vehicle on. Like people do uh, land speed records on salt flats up in up in the U.S. Like you know, mm-hmm. it's it's somewhere that yeah, you should feel confident driving through. Well, I felt very confident that I could at least go you know 20 miles out into salt flats, see what I saw enjoy that and then come back before sunset. And I ended up taking the wrong way. I suppose I guess there, there is a wrong way into a desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went through a very muddy portion that wasn't, hadn't dried up and I was going and going. I, I didn't realize that there's muddy part of the salt flats and there's the actual dried up, you know, crystalline kind of whatever that everyone sees in pictures. And I was going through that for like 20 miles, whatever the, uh, the town disappeared over the horizon behind me. Mm-hmm. And I've got all this on GoPro. It's it's pretty ridiculous. But all of a sudden, I just I just catch this like deep pit of mud in my front tire, and I'm going like a decent pace. And I just fly right over my handlebars, um, and and like just you know face first, eat a eat a bunch of mud, mm-hmm. and look back, and my motorcycle's still running. I take my helmet off, put it down, turn the bike off, and my my um steering steering bar wheel whatever handles, they were you know facing. I guess 45 degrees one way while my tire was 45 degrees the other way. Like, okay. Yeah. Um, and then I, I kind of like did a little 360 turn looking around me and I was definitely in the salt flats, albeit pretty muddy. And there's, there's just nothing in any direction, not a cactus, not a boulder, not a rock. Like it was just flat nothingness. Uh, and the sun was starting to set and like, I mean, at this point in my trip of everything I've been through, I, it didn't really phase me. But <laughs> <laughs> I can just, just imagine being like, yeah, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I was just like, just, just annoyed if anything, like, oh yeah, come on. 
Um, yeah, to be honest, like if, if that bike broke, I would have had to walk 20 miles in a desert in the middle of the night in freezing weather. Um, that would have been pretty rough. But that's not what I did. I ended up driving my motorcycle back towards the direction I thought was the town because mm-hmm. I actually had no reference. I smashed and shattered my phone. Um, I, I had no reference of which direction I was going, and I just kind of was hoping it was behind me. Yeah. And and uh, I'd also lost my backpack, which is another great uh, revelation I had when I crashed, is that it, my backpack wasn't tied to my motorcycle anymore. And I lost oh, it along the way. my gosh. Yeah, and that had all my GoPro footage that had my motorcycle boots and my laptop in it. I mean, it had some like some pretty key items for that trip. So I was, I was, I mean, honestly, I wasn't even upset at that point. I was just like, eh, shit happens, you know, things happen. Mm. It's fine. So I turned around, kept going. Uh, <laughs> it is the most uncomfortable riding position, you know, to keep the steering wheel straight while my hands are in a in, in a position as if I wanted to turn the bike hard hard to the right. Yeah, you know, um, it, it, it was goofy. But I did make it back finally. And by some, maybe I'm just really good with directions. <laughs> I, I don't know. But I think I took the exact path I took to get out there, back to the town. And my backpack was literally, I wasn't even looking for it. I was like, there's no way I'll find this backpack in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Um, I, I, ran, I just drove right over it <laughs> coming back. So I got my backpack back, which is great. And... Yeah, made it made it into a hotel, passed out immediately, and the first thing I did when I woke up was sign up for a tour. <laughs> Some professional take me out there. Um, yeah, I, I found a mechanic right before going on tour. He fixed my bike for twenty dollars, something would have cost hundreds of dollars back home. Mm. And it all it all worked out. Everything works out for a reason, I guess. Yeah, man. Ah, oh, I, I know there's so many more stories too, but. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, no worries. I, I want to hear more of it, but um, let's uh, let's fast forward to the end of the trip when he decided to fly back. Like, yeah, like on that plane, on that flight back. What were you thinking? Like, what like what were you reflecting on? What were what was the you know like what did you take away from all of that? So I actually got back. I think twelve hours before my flight took off, and. What I, I had to sell my bike when I got back, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I I didn't really have time to think. I, I got back to the town that I had been living in for five months. I found my friend who had already agreed to buy the bike and signed over the paperwork. Um, I I proceeded to spend an hour to teach him how to drive the bike he had just purchased because he'd never been on a motorcycle before. Okay. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I'm packing my bags and just headed to the airport. And I get on the plane and I sit down. And I, I just hadn't had a moment to like realize like I'm leaving now, you know, like everything I've been doing for a month, they all happened so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think to be honest with you, I, I fell asleep on the plane. It wasn't <laughs> until the next day when I'm back in my house in the outside DC where I was just like, wow, I'm really not living in a tent on a mountain right now. Like <laughs> I have a nice bed, there's air conditioning and I mean, I was grateful. I was, I was grateful to be back home. Like I had a fantastic trip. Mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to keep doing things like that but i was definitely grateful for the uh the small comforts i had i had being back yeah there's a lot of things we take uh we take for granted until you realize when you don't have it like how important it is like running tap water <laughs> oh you have no idea <laughs> yeah running tap water is a big one it's quite a, a luxury one. i was just like yeah i'm just gonna go get some water now and as i was pour, like opening the tap into 
my uh, into my water bottle, I was just like, man, there is clean water going into a water bottle, and I don't have to do anything. It's yep, that's it. Like it's just it's just going in. It's automatic, and like I don't know. Like even in Peru, you had to definitely buy water bottles, right? And uh, and Mexico is the same thing. So. Yeah, that's a great example or because I mean, I definitely had the same experience and like, like just today I went to Chipotle before, you know, me and you. And I, I, um, I asked if I could get some water and the, it just blows my mind when restaurants give you a free cup of water. And that's such a simple thing, you know, like, yeah, of course, like you can have some like tap water, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But like the fact that I can just drink that, I don't know. It, it still blows my mind because that's not a thing in a lot of countries around the world is like, you gotta buy bottled water, and even then, it's gonna be kind of expensive, and it's hard to get access to. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel it, man. So, you know, thinking back to it now, like, do you ever think, like, I want to complete the trip? You know, like, I, I want to go back one day and just like do it and do it right this time. Or are you kind of content with uh, with what you've done so far? I I I feel like I accomplished something I set out to accomplish for sure. Mm-hmm. But I do. I do definitely want to finish the trip. There's a lot of it that I had planned some routes for and some cities I wanted to visit to that I wasn't able to get to. And, you know, now that I'm back working, saving up my money, um, I mean, who knows when it will happen, but I like to think that I I will be back to finish another 5,000 miles. Definitely. And, uh, you know, just one more one more thing I'm thinking of for you is, like, what impact do you feel like you made any impact in the, in the sense of, you know, the fight against depression when you came back? Is is that something that, that like, you know, like you felt like you accomplished in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think any, any nonprofit, any organization, any cause can always use more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I raised, you know, a few thousand dollars, that's, I think the biggest thing that um, I was, I was the most proud of is, not just getting a conversation about depression going, which is something I wanted to, and that's something I, I feel like I accomplished between my, my social circle, but was also getting other people involved in community service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming back, a lot of people were really willing to, you know, do a uh, out of darkness walk, which is uh, a national walk people do for depression awareness. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends were kind of eager to get into volunteering and doing, uh, doing things for nonprofits. And so, that was pretty, pretty rewarding. Just, I don't know, I guess, I, I don't know if it was me or, or them, but influencing people and, and giving them, giving them a reason to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you do it again? Like, like the whole, you know, like, like raising money for, for depression awareness and things like that. Like, would you, would you do that again? I would, I definitely would. And I would put more preparation, I think, into how I, I market everything and, and getting a following going because that that is pretty important um, to to be successful in what you want to do. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I learned a lot on on how the process works and what you need to do to be successful mm-hmm. in in the uh, you know big fundraisers like that. And I'm gonna do another adventure like that. So I think if people were interested in following me one more time, I you know following what I'm up to. I definitely, yeah, 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 100%. Well, I mean, I'll definitely be the first person to say, you know, like I will market that for you. I'll push that out and let people know that uh, you're doing something like that again. And this time around, I'll definitely donate. <laughs> Last time when you were doing it, I was so broke. Like I was. Oh, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I no, mean, like now uh, I'd, I'd love to to put something 
um, more than just my eyes on it. Like, like, you know, giving you a platform to be able to tell those stories and, um, and, and definitely donating towards that cause. So yeah, let me know anytime that you decide to do that again. And I'm more than happy to, to help out with that. For sure. Yeah. I appreciate that. I feel like this is a conversation to, to start something, something big and something new. So yeah, no, that's exciting. Definitely, man. And just, uh, I, I just have one more question since, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, at this point, I'm just like, I'm just more than happy that there, there are such good stories here and such a good time talking, but um, just one more question is where are you off to next or have you, is that something you've planned out yet? Um, my, my, my life plans change every day. Um, I've always got something big in the works, you know, mm-hmm. uh, recently coming out of college and working full time, it's been, you know, go back to school, take some more classes, get my MBA. Um, it, it's kind of been some career development. But then also I find a lot, I find myself, you know, on lunch breaks or after work in my cubicle, watching these YouTube videos of people riding motorcycles across Africa, across (laughs) the U.S., you know, and like just doing these ridiculous things. And so it's always, you know, I'm definitely saving money up for a big, a big motorcycle trip. I'd love to ride my motorcycle from D.C. to Columbia and do a good portion of that trip I never, I never got to do. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'd love to go to Africa and ride from South Africa up to Egypt, maybe. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of things. You should consider Canada going across Canada. It's a, I mean, obviously you know it's a big country, but I think that would be something worth looking into as well. Yeah, yeah, I I've thought I've thought about that as well. And the whole Manitoba, Saskatchewan, that kind of part is is rather flat. Yeah, but I can speed through it. If I did a desert for seven days, it's chilly. You know, I think I can manage that. Yeah, exactly. And and there'll be cell phone service hopefully. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, the the uh, sky's the limit. There's always more things you can do. Man, and with that, I mean that's that's a perfect way to end this. Um, thank you so much for for coming on the show. And uh, seriously, anytime, like uh, I'll I'll be I'll, I'm on your side for this. I'll be rooting for you. Definitely looking forward to seeing what you do next. And um, thank you so much for the work you did to raise money for depression awareness. So much appreciated, man. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And if you like what you heard today, make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe. We're available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and of course, The Small World's website at www.thesmall.world. Thanks for tuning in to tonight's episode, and I'll see you next time.